One of the powerful pieces of American Christianity is um, is that when, um, to our national shame, um, we engaged in the act of human slavery, um, and and it's weird to think that, believe it or not, the United States has been free of slavery longer than it had slavery. Um, most people don't realize that, but. Um, but one of the things that came out of that, and God can use just about anything for his, his purposes, one of the things came out of that was that uh, when the, the slaves became Christians, they adopted their master's religion, um, the, and they had their own churches and all kinds of stuff like that that happened, um, a spirituality emerged in slavery that... Um, European Christianity didn't have because for the longest time European Christianity um, in the Middle Ages and stuff it was everybody was a Christian 99.9% of everybody had to be a Christian or you know you got executed um, so it was church membership was mandatory um, but uh, the, when the slaves became Christians they became Christians in an environment where they were looking to escape a world system the the European Christians thought that Christianity was the world system, and the slaves were trying to escape it. And in some ways, they revived some of the embers of ancient Christianity, which lived under an oppressive world system. Um, and so, I appreciate Janet uh, bringing that song, which is a which is an old um, American slave spiritual um, about escaping from the oppression. And um, it's one, of the, it's one of the aspects of American Christianity we often don't think about, but, but it influences us tremendously. Uh, and it ties in as well to what the Apostle Peter has been dealing with in 1 Peter. Uh, the last couple of weeks we've just been talking about how do we interact with this world system that is oppressive and weird and sometimes contrary to our faith. Um, and uh, remember that the Apostle Peter lives in Rome, and Rome is run by the Roman emperor, and the last couple Roman emperors in Peter's li- life have been completely and utterly insane. Um, the emperor Caligula, who is nicknamed after his, his, the booties he wore as a toddler, um, how would you like to go through your entire life with a nickname like that? Um, when I was a toddler, my nickname was Eggy. Um, if any of you call me that, uh, you will find surprises. Um, somehow I will get you back. All right. Um, and, uh, but most of us grow out of those things. How would you like to be known for all of history? When you could have been known as Tiberius Caesar Germanicus. And everybody instead calls you little booties. All right. Um, so he had some real issues. And then Claudius... Um, who was his uncle, he had some issues, and then Claudius' adopted son, Nero, who was so crazy, he tried to kill his mother several times, um, and finally got the Senate to do it, and there's a long story, and married his sister, and he was just nuts. Um, and so, uh, these are the people that, that Peter lives under, and yet, for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about his attitude of fear God and honor the emperor. This morning, he talks about another aspect of human society. Um, I'm going to do my best to not... Um, upset anyone, um, but there are never any guarantees. And so before we pray, I just have to give you a single disclaimer. Um, And this is for everybody, but it's also for me. Uh, Just so you know. Uh, So here's the disclaimer. I generally avoid telling women how to be women because I've never been one. 
All right? Um, now, Peter takes on a challenge that I would not take on. Um, in this passage, he's going to talk to wives, and he talks to husbands a little bit. Um, but I think there are some eternal purposes behind that. But I just want to go ahead and make that statement right up front. So if in some way um, something I say offends your sensibilities, please understand I have never been a woman, so I don't understand women, and no man does. And any man who believes he understands women is mistaken, and any woman will tell him that. Um, so, uh, but we want to just go ahead and begin uh, with a word of prayer and then look at 1 Peter chapter 3. Heavenly Father, as we again look to your word, help us to um, see beyond uh, cultures and ideas and, and preconceptions of presuppositions of how things work and help us to um, see what it is you are trying to say through Peter, through this old fisherman. Lord, sometimes he is um, incredibly insightful and sometimes Peter is incredibly frustrating. And uh, Lord, we just ask that we would be um, united one in one spirit with him. He was a part of the church. We are a part of your church and, and we are given one spirit. Help us to see how what he had to say how your spirit inspired what he had to say, and how your spirit would have us to live today, how those things work together. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the rack in front of you. The page number is in the bulletin. You can pull that out and check that. Oh, before I forget, completely has nothing to do with the sermon. Um, this Saturday... Uh, Miss Linda Lurvey needs to relocate her stuff to a place that she got in Goffstown. Um, what? What did I say? <laughs> oh, Linda, you are in for it. As another announcement, there will be a business meeting after the service to revoke Linda Lurvey's membership. No, um, so Linda is moving on Saturday, right? And um, we need... Uh, Men with trucks, or women with trucks, um, but we need trucks to move her stuff. She doesn't have a ton of stuff, right? That's right, it's all in my house. Um, but, uh, but the, and I wrote my name and marker on the foot. This belongs to Eggie. Um, but the, so we, but we, yeah, you shouldn't have. You're, <laughs> my hair is going to rebel against you. Oh, I know. Um, I didn't tell you what my sister calls me, uh, but the, so if you can help out on Saturday, we're going to try to, we're going to try to put together a crew. I actually have something going on that day, but we want to try to get some folks together. Um, so I, what time? Time? All right. Guys with trucks, mob Linda and, uh, make up nicknames for her and, uh, we'll try to figure something out. Maybe you can talk to Greg afterwards and see if we can sort out a time. I don't know, and uh, we try to figure that out. We'll email it out to everybody. But so Miss Linda, she moved back from Oklahoma, and she's she's ready to live in the land of civilization, and and so uh, she's been moving. So uh, wanted to I, she she sent me a text message last night, and I just wanted to I just remembered it. All right, back to First Peter chapter three, and uh, beginning in verse one. Likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands. Now he says likewise. 
Okay, so this is connecting back to the chapter 2. In chapter 2, he has dealt with our relationship toward human institutions, what exists in creation. And he's been dealing with human government and authority. Now he's going to deal with the household. Now, and I need to say this, that, that Peter is a Jew. Right? Now, even though he's a Christian... He's a follower of Christ. He was raised as a first century Jew. So he does not think of the family the way that you and I think of a family. This is an important thing that you understand. In our society, right? Um, if, a family, if a family thing doesn't work out, we try something else. We live in houses away from our parents. You know, I mean, how many of you, how many of you live reasonably close to your parents and grandparents, right? You don't count Isaac. You still live at their house, all right. And and Jed's parents moved here to be near him, all right. But um, you know, for many of us, our parents live. Oh, we moved away. You know, we we grew up. We moved away. Um, I, I I did it as soon as I graduated college. I moved to the Promised Land. I didn't want to be in Massachusetts. Who does? Um, but the uh, but the uh, you know this kind of thing we. In those days, in, in Peter's day, that was not the way the world worked. Uh, you did not move away. You added on to the family house. You just continued to live together. And, and the father, whoever the oldest father was in the household, he was the head of the household. And his wife uh, was the mother of the household. Um, and these, that was their way of thinking. They always thought of things. Uh, one of the things that, that blows people's minds is the realization that there were next to no single people in this world that Peter lived in. Um, and by single, I mean not married, unmarried, not married yet. As soon as a young girl was old enough to start having kids, she got married. And if she, her husband died early, she married somebody else. You, you didn't have unmarried people of childbearing age in his day. You, you continued, this is, what, this is how the Jewish home worked. And so when we read about the New Testament, we read about taking care of widows. And Peter says, make sure, or Paul says, make sure they're widows indeed. What he means is, and this is in uh, 2 Timothy, I think it is. Um, but he, what he means is a woman that has passed childbearing age and therefore there's nobody interested in marrying her because she can't have any more kids. That's what he means. So she has no children to provide for her and take care of her, and so she is a widow indeed. She's truly a widow. So this is a very different world than we live in. Um, it, women could own property, but generally in order to do things through the courts and legal system, she had to have a husband to be able to appear. Women often could not appear in Roman courts, and with the Jews, that was, that was really the way it was. You were always seen as a pair. Husband and wife were always considered a pair. Um, Judaism did allow for divorce, um, but different from our, our divorces here, if a man divorced a woman, under Jewish law, a woman could not divorce a man. She could kill him, but she couldn't divorce him. Um, but in Jewish, under Jewish law, if a, if a man divorced a woman, he was required to provide for her and her children until they all died. Right? Unless she remarried. There, was no, there were no negotiations for child support or anything like that. He was required. It didn't matter what she did. He had to take care of her. Um, and so generally you can imagine most men avoided this. Because um, the last thing you needed to do is take care of two households. Um, so he, is, he comes from this mindset of a different kind of a family. 
He comes from a world where a woman could not just walk out on her husband. Uh, it, now, now, and, and we, there are legitimate reasons for a woman to leave a man, all right? Um, abusive men, adulterous men, there are, there are reasons for a woman to leave a man. But in this society, she couldn't. It was just the way it worked. And so we talk about an oppressive system. You're dealing with an oppressive system. Now, the, the paradox of this and the oddness of this and how different first century Judaism is from the Torah, the, the scriptures that it was supposedly based on, in the Torah, a woman is the most revered human being that can exist. The reason there is no female God in the Jew, there is no female expression of God in Judaism, besides the fact that God reveals Himself as a Father, um, the way that they justified that was God did not need a female companion; He had all the women of the world, and they were enough to care for the world. That was how Judaism viewed, that's how the Torah views a woman. Women are the highest order of creation. You know, God, somebody said to me, God created man, and then after he had worked out all the kinks, he created woman. Um, the, the, this idea of that women were revered, they're so revered in, in biblical Hebrew, um, the female form of nouns is always, and verbs is always the dominant form. Um, so in other words, if you have a verb, you always say, you always learn how to say, she did this, before you learn how to say, he did this. The mother was revered. She was, she was almost worshipped in ancient Judaism. A woman was the highest, women were the highest honor. Um, and so, so in a sense, the rabbinical Judaism that, that Peter grew up, with, grew up in is inverted. It's not quite right. Um, in fact, the Apostle Paul deals with this in Ephesians chapter 2. Um, he talks about the abolition of the law with its ordinances, that God, that Jesus in his flesh destroyed the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, the, the law and its ordinances. And the word he uses for ordinances, the word dogma, he's saying this is all the things that people have added on to the law. Those things have been destroyed, but the scriptures themselves still remain. So Peter is struggling against that world system where women were, they were um, really not given a whole lot of rights. Um, it, it's not, and that, that is not what the scriptures teach, it's what Judaism taught. All right, so make sure you make the distinction between what the, the Bible says and what the religion that man had built up around the Bible said. This is an important distinction you should always make because the scriptures are inspired of God. Men are often inspired by whatever they decide to be inspired by. All right? So when he says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, let's talk about the husbands. So even, though some, even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, I want, you, I want to ask you a question about this line. When you read this, who is the person most likely to be in error in this sentence? Who is the person most likely to be doing things the wrong way in this sentence? The husband. People read the Bible and they go, well, God's saying a woman has to be submit, And he's saying, look, husbands are imperfect. And sometimes they don't hear the word. And what does he mean by the word? The word, the truth, all right? The, the reality he says, sometimes they blow it, but they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, this is purely conjecture. 
purely conjecture. But um, the Apostle Peter was a married man. Um, he had a mother-in-law that Jesus heals in the Gospels. So he understands enough about the dynamic of men and women to know that you can tell your husband to do something he doesn't want to do all you want. But if you can get him to do it without telling him, it's more likely that he will. All right? Now, this is, the, this is a logic my wife will often employ on me. Now, she doesn't do it on purpose, I don't think. But she has figured out that the most sure way to get me to do the dishes is to leave dishes. She doesn't have to tell me to do the dishes. I cannot stand dishes with food in them on the counter. It drives me nuts. And so I will walk into the kitchen. I will be in the middle of something. I will be doing something. And I will walk in the kitchen and go, oh. And, and then it involves me. I have to scrub the sink because I don't like, I don't like leaving the sink dirty. I, I, I wear the paper towels. I've got to wipe the thing down. I, I go through, I wipe the counters down. And she's sitting there going, oh, you didn't need to do that for me. Now, legitimately, I don't think she does this on purpose. But it is a surefire way to get me to do it. As opposed to saying to me, uh, will you do the dishes? In which case, or, or, or the, the, do you want to do the dishes? Well, of course I don't want to do the dishes. But I will do them. You know, but... Often men will do things just because it's there. There's an opportunity to do it. Um, a good good man will do that anyway. I don't know, but but um, the the but often if we try to convince somebody to do something, um, because men we talked about this a few weeks ago. Men live in their waffle boxes. All right, you're talking you're talking to him and he's trying to watch a hockey game. He is not hearing a word you're saying. He's in the hockey box. All right, he's sitting there going, "What? I'm sorry, what?" All right, and then you get mad. But but convincing, but being able to do something through deed um, will also often win him over. Um, and so we're, he's he's exploring kind of a dynamic, and it's important that we understand. I'm not sure that Peter is saying this is the way things always work. All right. In other words, I don't think this is prescriptive. What Peter is saying, he is describing the way that he has observed the dynamic of domestic life. And so he's kind of he's looking at it and saying, look, this, the scriptural principle is a wife is supposed to submit to her husband. This is the Bible. But here are some things that happen in human relationships, and this is you know, kind of how it goes. So he says, they might be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now look at, the, and that I think is, is, like I said, it's descriptive. I don't think it's necessarily a normative statement. It's something, this is the way it works. If you just do good things and don't say anything, your husband will come along. I don't know that that's necessarily what he's dealing with. But in the next verse, he is dealing with, with a, an underlying principle. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, when he talks about the braiding of hair, he's not, the Bible is not against women braiding their hair, and the Bible is not against women wearing jewelry. Um, in the, the Greek culture, and also in the Roman culture, um, your, a woman, a Jewish culture as well, your woman's hair was her glory 
And so a woman who would take her hair and she would braid it and what they would do is they would braid jewelry, chains and things and nets into their hair um, to demonstrate how wealthy they were, how rich they were. Now, you, lest, you, lest you think that that's odd, um, during the time of Shakespeare, during Elizabethan um, England, it was very popular for men to sew jewelry into their clothing to show how wealthy they were. Um, we have evidence of that left over, by the way, in every man's suit. Um, every man's suit has two or three absolutely pointless buttons on the end of the sleeve. Have you ever noticed that? What are those buttons for? And why are they there? It's because buttons were a way of showing how wealthy you were because you had all of these snaps and connections. You needed servants in order to put your clothes on. And so poor people, in order to impress rich people with how awesome they were, they would put pointless buttons on their clothing to give the, the, the semblance that they were wealthier than they really were. Um, and so you have buttons that have no purpose. It's kind of like, you ever seen, you ever been fitted for a suit? You guys ever been to a suit place? And they say, okay, button only the middle button. And I'm one of those people, I sat there and said, so why did you give me the other two? Because now I'm confused. Now I don't know why I need the other two buttons. Well, the same thing with the buttons on the sleeves. Some people say it's because Napoleon's armies, they were wiping their noses. That's not true. No one ever wipes their nose like this. All right, so the point that those buttons don't serve that purpose. Uh, all neckties, though, were originally intended to stop sword blows. Okay. Um, but uh, they were. I, I'm not making it up. Not the neckties you guys are wearing, the big cravats. All right. Anyway, so women would adorn themselves, all right, and they were showing everybody how wealthy they were. They were showing everybody how important they were. They were showing everybody how, how much their husband loved them because he poured all this money on them and they could braid their hair and they could put the jewelry in. And, and aren't, aren't I amazing and wonderful? And I think Peter's experience was that often the women that felt they needed to prove how wealthy they were and how much their husbands poured money on them and everything, the reality was those relationships were a sham. I think Peter looked at that and he saw the external beauty and he said, well, external beauty is nice, but without internal beauty, without, without something of substance, without a woman of substance, external beauty is insignificant. That's what he's saying. A woman of substance. Now you guys all have met at some point one of those people who are just absolutely beautiful. You know, we were, uh, Leo and Nicole and I were at uh, Panera Bread uh, last week or the week before and this guy, and Leo's back was turned, I'm not sure if you saw him, but this guy got out of his car and he looked like a GQ model. His hair was perfect, big aviator glasses, exactly one and a half days worth of growth on his face, shirt perfect, you know, like wearing clothes you only see in a magazine. You know, you know the kind of person I'm talking. I, I can't, I see that stubbly beard thing that everybody has. All I can think of is George Michael, but that's beside the point. Um, the, I, I, I just, uh, that was an 80s reference. The, I mean, he got out and he just, he wanted to show how incredibly awesome he was and, and he was walking like a model and he, for all I know, he was a model. Have you ever met? somebody that was just they were just so gorgeous and then you had tried to have a conversation with them and they have the intellect of a kendall <laughs> you know i mean you know what's your favorite sports team i don't know which one's uniforms look nicer no 
That's not how we decide sports teams, all right? Um, and they just, there's no intelligence and there's no, this is what he's dealing with. He's talking about a woman who might look beautiful, but there's no substance. And what's extraordinary is the substance that he refers to. He says, you know what? The strongest, most wonderful, and I think, I, I believe that Peter is describing his wife here. Now, I can't guarantee that. I would not take a bullet for it. But what is the one woman that Peter would have known better than any other woman on earth? It was his wife. And he seems to say, and he says this, you want a woman who is adorned inwardly with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now I think we do a great injustice to women when we, we equate gentleness and quietness to weakness and passive, passive approaches. That is not what he is talking about. Gentleness and quietness are not rolloverness. They are not walkoverness. It's substance and strength. To illustrate that, I need, I need a volunteer. I need somebody who wants to try to punch me. All right? A guy, preferably a guy. No, Wittenbergs are out because your uppercuts are still above my head. (laughs) Greg, can I borrow you? All right, so now I want to do this slowly. Let's do this up here. Because, all right. Now, if Greg and I are in a fight, right? So, fight posture is? All right. And we're going to go at it. And what do most people do when they're going to go in a fight? Oh, you're going to come in and we're going to start swinging and all this stuff. All right. Now, the reality is, and you guys know that I, pra- I practice martial arts. And the martial arts that I practice are what are called Aiki arts, which means that they seek harmony with the, the person that's trying to attack you. That doesn't mean we say, mm, that's not... All right, but rather we, we look at the energy that's coming at us and we attempt to control that energy. So um, what I want you to do is I want you to throw an uppercut with your right arm. And we're going to do this slowly so that you can see what happens. Now, if he throws the uppercut and I'm sitting there like this, all right, what's going to happen? I'm going to be clocked like Geno Smith. All right? Because, because I'm all in and I'm all excited. But in, in the Aiki arts, we learn that the most important defense that you can have is a gentle and calm spirit that you can be centered and be aware and not allow what he's doing and the chaos of the situation to dictate what I do, but rather to be in control of myself and not be, <laughs> I'm going to fight you, but rather to find a gentleness and a calmness. So again, we're going to do this. So as he throws this uppercut, all right, As he throws this uppercut, I have a couple of different options here. The option I'm going to take, so go ahead and go back. The option I'm going to take is I'm going to step into his uppercut. You go step in, you're going to step into a punch. Go ahead. Now, his punch is locked between my arms. Unfortunately, that one is available. So, because I'm being gentle, I'm going to bring his arm up like this, and I'm going to control Greg, you're right? All right? I'm going to control... I'm going to control Greg here. Now, I'm doing absolutely nothing. I'm doing other than holding his arm, all right? But if I lower my weight to Greg, I just keep bringing him down to the ground, all right? And even if I take my weight off, I'm in complete control of the situation. If I want Greg to go that way, I send Greg that way. If I want Greg this way, all right? Thanks, Greg. 
Um, anytime, anytime that we're dealing with somebody attacking or somebody being aggressive with us or, or somebody oppressing us or dealing with us, what, what we need to be, men, women, or children, we need to be calm and gentle spirit internally to be able to handle the situation. Because if we are chaotic on the inside, if we are out of control on the inside, if we are anxious on the inside, then all we're going to do is feed the chaos and craziness. Does that make sense? And the reality is, a woman can be as beautiful as she wants, and he's using this illustration of a woman, I'm not sure that this is just to women, but a woman can be as beautiful in the world, but if she is chaotic and contentious and argumentative and and aggressive, is she really going to accomplish anything other than create arguments and contention and aggressiveness? But a woman who has found internal gentleness and calmness, That woman can manage a situation gently and calmly and resolutely because she's a woman of substance. It does not mean gentleness and calmness is, oh, you're going to punch me? Go ahead. I'm gentle. I'm calm. I'm going to let you beat up on me. That's not what he's saying. He's saying gentleness and calmness because look at the way that he describes this. For this is how... Now, I'm just going to... Go ahead and say, I think Peter, I don't understand why Peter picks the illustration that he picks. All right? But this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, if you don't know the story, this is in Genesis, this is Genesis 12. This is actually the part where Sarah laughs when God tells Sarah that she's going to have a baby. And she says, but this is what my Lord wants. And she calls Abraham her Lord. Um, and that's an ancient, ancient Middle East thing. And you are her children if you do good. Look at the line here. And do not fear anything that is frightening. The chaos feeds into fear. I think Yoda said that. But, but chaos feeds into fear. When internally we're a mess, it doesn't matter what we look like on the outside. When internally we're a mess and something that is worth fearing comes along, we get afraid. Now, what is the instinctive reaction to somebody throwing a punch at you? What is the instinctive? Exactly. The instinctive human reaction to somebody throwing a punch is doing this. Which, by the way, if you want to really learn how to block a punch, always turn your arms out like this. Reason being, there are two bones here and no major veins. In here, there's veins and arteries and tendons and all kinds of stuff. Bone is stronger than muscle. So if you're going to block a punch, block it like this. Um, but but our, in, our, our instinct when we're afraid is to shrink back. You, know, you guys remember what my training taught me to do when that punch comes in? I stepped in. Why? Because in the gentleness and calmness of the situation, I know that's the easiest way to manage that particular punch, is to step in and control the situation, to take away the center of the scenario. And that that is true in martial arts, but it's also true in your life. Gentleness and calmness of the spirit helps you manage the things that you are afraid of. And then rather than fear multiplying in your life, Calmness allows you to lead, direct, control, love, submit. 
all these various different assorted things. And men and women, I'll tell you what, men who do things, um, and I don't want to get into all the details, so the abuse and all of it, blah, blah, but men who do things that hurt other people, if you spend long enough, you will find that there are two real causes for that. Number one, they're psychologically a mess, all right? Or number two, they're deeply afraid of something. You say, why would a man be afraid of a woman? I don't know. But there's something about somebody that when they're afraid of something, they, they try to fight it, oppress it, strike down on it, control it. And it's true for men as it is for women. But if we can find an internal gentleness and quietness in spirit, that's what God wants us to have. God is not worried about what you look like. He's not concerned with your appearance. Because appearances are only surface level. Uh, appearance is only, I mean, we hate to say it, but, but looks are only skin deep. And some of them are actually on top of skin. You know, um, some of them are artificially created. They don't even exist. Some of the things that people envy and, and lust after in popular culture do not actually exist through the creation of computers and airbrushes and all that kind of stuff. Beauty doesn't derive from the exterior in. It comes from the interior out. And if we can find a gentleness and a quietness of spirit. Now what is quietness in this context? Quietness is not, you know, I never say anything. I don't do anything. Uh, and I, I'm not going to get it, but in, in our martial arts, in the, in the practices that we do, we almost never say anything. I never say, we're in fighting, we never say, all right, do this technique or do that technique or do this or do that. We never say that. We, all we do is breathe. So as, we're, as we're doing a kata and we're, we breathe. We don't say anything. We never talk. We, we, don't, we don't sit there and go, okay, so now what I'm going to do, I'm going to do this and I'm going to... The, the quietness is a harmony. It's a, it's a space where we, we find and we, we hear the things around us that are, that are moving around us. We can hear the, the aggression or non-aggression of a situation. We, we find a quietness. And the same thing is true in our spirits when we're looking at submission. We have to begin with a gentle and quiet spirit. We have to begin with a gentle and quiet spirit. And that helps us confront the things that are fearful. And confronting the things that are fearful allow us to grow into the submitted men and women that we are called to be. To know how to deal with situations and respond to things. Can I, can I just kind of ask you an honest question? And you don't have to answer this here, but I want you to think about it maybe during the week. Have you ever made a life-changing decision in anger that was the best decision at that moment? Now, you might have been angry at some point and walked away and thought about it and processed it and came back and said, I need to do something about this. I'm talking about making a decision in anger at the moment. I've decided to do this thing now. 
I don't know about you, but if I go back over my life, the decisions I made that way, they might have been the right thing, but they were almost always done the wrong way. There are almost always something about that that I wish I could take back, that I wish I could apologize for, that I wish I could rewind. Now again, I may have been dealing with a terrible situation, I, dealing with a situation I needed to get out of, but because I acted in anger rather than in gentleness and calmness of spirit. I sit there with reluctance and, and scars and brokenness. We must begin with gentleness, quietness. When I first got into martial arts, I thought it was the craziest thing in the world that we started every session just sitting there. I mean, this gets old real fast. I'm the kind of guy that can't do this for more than about three seconds. I want to be doing something. Give me something to build. Give me something to break. Give me something to think about. Why are we still here? Let's talk about things. I notice there's a spot on the ceiling. Oh, the fans are spinning pretty fast. And my instructor would go, I'm, you know, you guys know how I am. I, I wake up like I'm hopped up on coffee. All right. I mean, when I have my coffee, that's when I. Yeah. All right. I I tend to move fast, talk fast, move fast. That's what. No, no. Quiet. Calm down. Find peace. Find find a a space where you can relax. Find find that calmness and that gentleness. And what's extraordinary about it is, believe it or not, and and you know, Lynn had to sit like this. It's called seiza. All right. You have to sit like this a lot in Japan. Um, we do whole fights like this. We, do, we engage with weapons and all kinds of stuff down on our knees like this. And, and you have to find a quiet and a calmness. You have to find a peace in order to act. And spiritually, as believers, we are often so busy that we lose that gentleness and quietness that Peter is talking about. I think it was true in Peter's life. I have a feeling, and again, I'm going to close with this entirely speculative statement. I have a feeling when Peter would go home to his wife and tell her what he had said to Jesus. Now remember, Jesus lived in their home. All right? Jesus lived in Peter's house in Capernaum, probably in a room out back. you know. And, um, but I just imagine Peter sitting there and talking to his wife, and I don't know what her name was. Um, you know, but saying to her, hey, you know, this is amazing. This is what happened with me and Jesus today. And I just picture her going, you said what? You did what? He's like, yeah, it seemed like a really good idea. And then he called me Satan. I don't know what I did wrong. And she had to sit there and explain it to him. I have a feeling if Peter's wife was, was um, half the woman my wife is, 90% of the way he, reason he became the way that he became is because she was with him. She must have been an extraordinary woman. We know absolutely nothing about her. But for her to live with Peter, all right, that's an extraordinary work in and of itself. Um, but but I, I just, I think, and it's totally speculation, but I think that he sees his wife, and maybe she'd passed away since this. I mean, Peter is old at this point. He's probably in his, his, his 60s or 70s. I know that doesn't sound very old now, but it was old then, um, you know. Uh, but uh, but he, he had probably gone through his life. 
And she was, I, I, I just think she was, I could be completely wrong, but I think he saw in her the qualities that made a good Christian woman. And they made him a better Christian man because he was able to copy that gentleness and calmness that he saw in her. That's purely speculative. What is definitely there is this recommendation. And again, I want to reiterate this. He is not saying just that, gen- that all women should just roll over and whatever their husbands say is absolute authority. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying be a woman of substance. Have gentleness and quietness at your core so that when things that are fearful come, you will deal with them the right way. Now he will, by the way, address the husbands in the next verse. So come back next week because I think, I think Peter tries to kind of expand things with women. He's very direct with men. Peter, Peter knows how men think. Remember the disclaimer? I try not to tell women how to live because I've never been one. Peter has been a man. He knows how to describe being a man and what men should do. And I have a, I have a feeling Peter was one of those guys whose kids would do something dumb and he would just go, stop it. Get it right. You know, the, the, I, I think he was a very different person. But anyway, um, I want to encourage you this week. I want to encourage you this week. I want to give you something very practical to do. I want you to encourage you to find some time this week Look inside yourself and find some gentleness, some quietness. And try to exercise that part of you. Because according to Peter, that is the most beautiful part of you in God's eyes. Read those verses again. That's what he wants to see. What he wants to see. I invite you to join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we once again come together and consider your word and uh, consider a, a part of your word that, uh, to be honest, has often been misinterpreted and misconstrued and, and abused to um, oppress some folks, to treat people as less than valuable to you. Lord, I pray that we, we have opened our eyes to really what what Peter is trying to say, and, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure it comes across as 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 strongly as I think he intended it to, and and you had reasons for that with your Holy Spirit, but Lord help us to find gentleness and calmness and quietness to be your men and your women and your houses in your church. We pray this in Jesus' name.